Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Fig Widow Cast. I am Danny Janae, your host, uh, your intrepid guide through the universe of creative processes and the things that we pick up along the way of creating the things that we make. Um, yeah, I. I'm really excited for this week's episode because I have a guest on that is like so exciting. Um, I already read to you from her book in an earlier episode, um, but today's guest is Alicia Mountain, um, author of High Ground Coward and newest from, I believe, Boa Editions, Four in Hand. Um, I don't know if that's how you say it. I say Boa. It might just be BOA editions. Um, yeah, so she's going to be on the podcast today. Super excited. But before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about, let's just jump right in and get started on media takeout. I mean, not media takeout, um, media consumption. So I started a second job recently. And in that job, I just like write um, articles and stuff about like news and like pop culture, all that stuff. So I started watching the show called Dirty Laundry. It is on a platform called Dropout TV. It is another subscription platform. I know that that is like so annoying, but this one is really cool. Um, I believe the monthly rate is $5.99, so it's not too expensive. Um, if you can afford that, then I would definitely recommend it. Um, yeah, so Dirty Laundry, the premise of the show is that four actors slash comedians get together and each of them submits one to two or three secrets to the host. Um, and the host will read out the secret and they all have to guess whose secret it is um, over drinks. So it's like a drinking game kind of thing. Um, if the person who is the secret holder, I'm calling them, is able to divert um, attention to someone else and make people think that it isn't their secret, they get three points. And if someone guesses the secret correctly, if someone matches the secret to the person correctly, they get one point. Um, and so it just gets really rowdy, lots of like salacious secrets, lots of funny secrets, all that stuff. So I've been watching a lot of that and I wrote something about it for the Mary Sue, which I'm not a contributing writer there, which is the job that I was talking about. Um, so yeah, I have been watching that. I've been still listening to podcasts, listening to a lot of music though lately. Um, I just discovered this band called, or I guess it's not a band, but just like, um, a musical artist called Maro. They are Portuguese. She is Portuguese. Um, and she has a beautiful voice, just like so serene and calming, um, that should be the Untoppable Bob for this week. Um, yeah, so Untoppable Bob will be We've Been Loving in Silence by Morrow. Available on streaming platforms. Um, I think the album that it comes from is available for purchase from their website. I'll put the website link in the bio for this episode, in the description for this episode. Um, but yeah, Morrow is a lovely, lovely artist. I've listened to a lot of her. I've listened to a lot of Destin Conrad, 
lately. Um, what else? I took a little stroll down memory lane and listened to the 2017 album from The National. I think it's called Sleep Well Beast. That I don't know if I've said it on this podcast before, but The National is definitely my favorite band. I listen to them a ton. Um, but yeah, they are my favorite band. Sleep Well Beast is a great album. Sorry, there is a plane, I think, and it's very loud. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, it's a plane. Very loud. Wow. Sorry about that. Um, But yeah, listening to that as well. And what else? Nothing else, really. So before we jump into the interview, I wanted to talk a little bit about, because I'm talking to Alicia, who is a lesbian poet, I want to talk about elders and specifically lesbian elders. So, um, the first lesbian that I met was probably my sister's friend, Gail. And I met Gail when I was like, maybe before I came out for sure, I came out at 12, but, um, I met her when I was like nine, 10, 11. So I'm like around that age. Those years are a blur for me. Shout out to trauma. But like, I met her around that time. And I remember just like, she was, I think, had a great balance of like masculine and feminine energy. Definitely lean more mask. But I was like, and I, I had never met a woman who was like masculine at all, really. Um, and so I was like mystified by her. And then I found out she was a lesbian and I was like, whoa, <laughs> cool. <laughs> I just like, I was fascinated by her. And um, sometimes when I was hanging out with my sister, I would like see Gail. Um, and I always had this vision of her as like very tall, but it might've just been because I was a child. Um, and I wasn't like short. I grew very um, quickly. And for a while, I always use this as like a barometer, but like for a while, my shoe size was the same as my age. So like when I was eight, my shoe size was a size eight in women's. Um, and then when I like was nine, it went up to nine. When I was 10, it went up to 10. And I pretty much stopped growing around then because my shoe size today is still 10. Um, but yeah, I just like, before I came out, I was just like mystified by Gail and like her queerness sorry there's a bug her queerness and what I perceive to be her strength and like her I don't give a fuckness you know she is very strong and like self-assured so that was like something that I longed for to be self-assured and to be okay in my own skin and when I did come out I had a friend that came out before me my friend Kate um, and she also came out as bisexual first. Um, I think she still identifies as bi, but I um, lived a bi life for many years, um, up until I was probably like 19, so for like seven years. And then I came out as a lesbian at around 18, 19. Um, yeah, uh, Kate was like, Someone that I really looked up to, because not only was she, like, super smart, she was also, like, the first one in our friend group to come out. And I know that, like, 
my best friend Shanae is also a queer woman. Um, and she came out a little bit later. Um, but I think Kate was the first of us to like, like, yeah, I'm queer. And that was like so cool to me. Um, so I consider her, she's older than me, so I consider her kind of an elder as well. Um, and then when I was like coming up in college, I got very interested in reading. I think I told the story already, but I got very interested in reading lesbian poets. So like Adrian Rich, that's the way I say it. I know that other people have say like Adrian, but I say Adrian. Um, Audrey Lord, Pat Parker, um, who else? Other poets of that like ilk, um, Emily Dickinson. I consider her a lesbian poet. You can find me in the comments, I don't care. Um, but yeah, I was just like very fascinated by women who lived their lives as lesbians before it was like legal to do so. You know, like for years, um, homosexuality was classified as a mental illness. So like people that lived during that time and were like, fuck it, I, I'm gay. You know, like I like women. That was like so wild to me. Um, so I loved reading poets and um, writers from that era. And also when things became more acceptable to be gay. So like more contemporary lesbian poets. Um, and it really like spurred me to write about women and the women that I was in relationship with in my own poetry. So like I wrote about the first time I had sex with a woman in a poem for my like freshman creative writing seminar. Um, I wrote about, um, I write about still like the first woman that I ever loved, loved um, and all that stuff, you know, it's just like seeing somebody else live the life that you want before you, you were able to live it and like, watching them thrive or like survive or whatever it is they're doing is really like harrowing and inspiring. Um, so very inspired by the lesbians of yore. Um, and it led me to be like very queer and like explicitly queer in my own writing. So like one of the first poems that I got published was a love poem for a woman that I was in a, in a relationship with and then my most like enduring poem that I've gotten published is called Fig, um, which you can find on my website. But that is like a poem about straight up like lesbian sex. So it's very like coded and like and shrouded in metaphor, but like that's what it's about. I always say it online because people are like, oh, it's so beautiful. It's so rich. It's like such an ode to the fruit. And I'm like, yes, but let's get to the crux of it. It's about touching a woman, casing a woman, all that stuff. So yeah, I was just like very empowered by the lesbian poets that came before me to do that kind of writing in an explicit way. Um, and I, you know, I always try and give props to the elders, the ones that came before me, the ones that did it before me. I'm blanking on a lot of their names now, but like 
I have a whole two, three shelves on my bookcase dedicated to poetry, and a lot of them are lesbian poets. So, like, I have a lot of them in mind, but I'm just blanking on their names right now. But I have one that I'm reading to you from. I think she's a lesbian poet. I'm not, we'll just say queer, but after the break, I'll come back with a reading for you from Head Off and Split by Nikki Finney. Okay, so we're back with some poems by Nikki Finney. Um, Just to be frank, a lot of the poems in this book are very long, and I know that I've said on this podcast before that, like, when I read longer poems sometimes, I tend to, like, stutter. I'd, like, trip over words. Um, I've always had, like, a bit of a stutter, um, so bear with me. I will try my best to read it through smoothly um, and get to you, get you the poem the way that it's supposed to be read, the way that it deserves to be read. So I want to start kind of later in the book with Heirloom. Sundown, the day nearly eaten away, the boxcar willies peak, their inside eyes push black and plump against walls of pumpkin skin. I step into dying backyard light, both hands steal into the swollen summer air, a blind reach into a blaze of acid, ghost bloom of nacre and breast. One Atlantan Cherokee purple, two piddling radiator Charlies, Arlena Horn learned to these fingers of my right hand. But I really do love you. Enters my ear like a nest of yellow jackets, well wedged beneath a two by four. But I really didn't think I would ever leave. Stings before the ladder hits the ground. I swat the familiar buzz away. My good arm arcs and aims. My elbow cranks a high, hard cradle and draws fire. The end of days, sweaty air stirs fast in a bowl. The coming shadows, the very diamond match I need. One by one, each blind really takes his turn pollocking the back fence. Heart pine explodes, gold leafed and red and brown eyed ochre. There is practice for everything in this life. This is how you throw something perfectly good away. Ooh. Ooh, what a line. So good. Ooh, should I read this one? Yeah, I should. I'll just mark this episode as explicit. The clitoris. The clitoris is nine centimeters deep in the pelvis. Most of it scrunched and hidden. New studies show the shy curl to be longer than the penis. But like Africa, the continent, it is never drawn to size. Map makers and others who draw important things for a living do not want us to know this. In some females, the clitoris stretches, unfurls, eight inches with two to three, point five in, shaft free, outside the body. The longest clitoris of record has been found in the blue whale. In water, desire can rise, honor sea levels, ignore landlocked cartographers, 
and water desire refuses to retreat. <laughs> so good. Oh my God. What else do I want to read from this book? Like I said, a lot of these poems are very long, so I'm trying to find the shorter ones so I don't get woozy. Okay. Let's do this one. Hash Marks. Drayton Hall Plantation. For South Carolina and its corridor of shame. The blue bonnet children had a wall. The swimming swamp dogs too. Their hash marks of height played peak with the same canary sun. Plantation measurements of progress. See, this is them on two legs. This higher one here on four. On this tour, every visitor but one gets misty-eyed concerning the preservation of the pencil lines. Where is the wall that rims the height and progress of the Negras? Sheetrock record of cross-cut backs, split hymens, split bellies, sold away sons. The recordings from the precise records of these to honey of the calculations that grandfather time. What is here for me in the big house is suspended, afloat in bee amber. Each long drawn, lost longing, root cellared, pickled, airtight, dunked in blue glass jars, wax drip tops, shout and twist. Wow. Maybe I should read this one. Instruction final to brown poets from black girl with silver Leica. Be camera, black eyed arbiter. Be diamond back terrapin, the only animal that cannot run a hurricane. Be 250 million years old. Be I saw the seas, serious. Rhapsody, Hagen, Hagen, Hubble, stay hot. Create a pleasure that can stir up the world. Study the moon with a pencil. Drink the ephemerides. Lay with the almanacs. Become the lunations. Look up the word southing before you use it in a sentence. No, southing is not a verb. Imitate the remarkable days. Locate all your ascending nodes. Chew eight times before you swallow the lyrics and silver lamentations of James Brown, Abby Lincoln, Al Green, Curtis Mayfield, and Aretha. Hey, watch your language. Two and a quarter is not the same as deuce and a quarter. Two-fisted is not two-faced. Remember, one monkey don't stop no show. Let your fat belly be cooked so quietus. Pass on what the winemakers know. The juice is not made in the vats, but in the vineyard. Keep yourself rooted in the sun, rain, dark blue camphored air. Row until you die, but before you do, leave your final kiss. Lay mint or orange, eucalyptus garland, double tuck these lips. Double to the very end, 
what you deny, dismiss, and cut away. I have spoken the best I know how. That is the last one in the book. Like, whoa. Whoa. Okay, what else do I want to read? We got a few minutes. I don't know. There's so many long poems in this book. Let me see if I can read this one. All right. The Condoleezza Suite. Concerto number five. Condoleezza Inn and Transigence. At piano, you are major sound. More than the articulate ivory key. You hear things that aren't there. On nightly TV, you open your mouth to sing. A brilliant delayed count lifts, subsides. You take pride driving through your Shostakovich gap. At news, conferences, you and they, cheek to cheek, are guillotined and gutted, prepared, handled, neatly trussed with jade and diamond thread. You are the fifth little girl of bombing hand. Found recently with literature marks beneath high court rulings. Excavated with airbrush and Texas-sized picks by not one but two closely related presidents. Preserved forever in Washington marble. In the panning lights of CNN. On display, the ruby carrot curio. Fresh from the worldly rubble of integration. Concerto number seven, Condoleezza, working out at the Watergate. Condoleezza rises at four, stepping on the treadmill. Her long fingers brace the two slim handles and of accommodating steel. She steadies her sleepy legs for the long day ahead. She doesn't get very far. Her knuckles buckle, wanting back last night's dream. Dream number nine. She is 15 and leaning forward from the bench playing Mozart's piano concerto in D minor before the gawking, disbelieving, applauding crowd. Not dream number two. She is nine and not in the church that explodes into dust. The heart pine floor giving way beneath her friend Denise, rocking up her, rocking her up into the air like a jack-in-the-box of a black girl, wrapped in Dixie Cross. She ups the speed on the treadmill, remembering she has to be Three times is good. Don't mix up your dreams, Condi. She runs faster, back to the right, finally hitting her stride. Mozart returns to her side. She is 15 again, all smiles and relocated to the peaks of the Rocky Mountains, where she and the Steinway are the only black people in the room. Oof, wow. Hmm. What to read next? There are a lot of poems about Condoleezza in here, um, but I don't know. I don't know if I want to read all of them.
Let's see. Let's read this one. Orangery for V. The way you make love is the way God will be with you, Rumi. One. The arc of your boneless back flags above me. We are blind discoverers. The nine seas pull between us. Blue curves, maritime, sheath of surrender, limbed night. What sweeter world could be voyaged from the earth's center? Feast of fig suckle, orange, the twice thick skin of key limes, breath of peppermint, braided, burning. Two, the long twin inches of my hands take the whole night to ski the two pineapple halves of you. Brown baklava pieced over a caramel cooler of skin. The monsoon is early. Two marsupials coax deeper into the pouch of wet night, wandering inside the hour of the lungs, hoping to turn conch by day. Our outside skins well brushed. Inside we are desperate sandpaper, breathless. The buttery lights of day sink into dawn. Two perfect halves of pink grapefruit, skinned, twelve times crushed to velvet, lifted, assumed to the inside of nuke, inside flesh of nuke coconut. A burning moon fossilizes, fig sway, right over right, left dips left. Don't fall is what you whisper back to you in your sleep. It's too late to warn the earth of the impression coming. Three, we wrap each other down, around, become ground for cover ever lonely, night that ever was. In the morning, the monkeys come to eat what's left of us. Talk is the great storm, long gone now. The older one, the bishop, who never stops filling his jaws and covering his eyes, listens back. For one last thunderswall of right, of fruit, he hopes will fall. He wants one last flooding midnight note to drop like nine miles of ripe banana down the back of his throat. He wants return, homily, consecration. What was it that shook the blood oranges and bread fruit from our every tree? What left the roads reduced, impassable? What assuaged the purple hills all night, all the way to the tea, Lucy, circling the fruit floating there, twister of raw sugar cued on row after row, Ginger grated, peeled, dried, tangling tango of tongues. Okay, this is the last time that I'll read from this one. The Ariel for E. I sought my hand in midair. If I touch her there, everything about me will be true. The new world discovered without a pickaxe. I will be what Brenda Jones was stoned for in 1969. I saw it as a girl, but didn't know I was talking. I was taking in myself. My hand remembers treading the watery room, just beyond the rose-veiled eyes of memory. Alone in the yard, tucked beneath the hood of her car. Lucky clover all about her feet. Green tea, sweet necklace, for a mud pie, crusty work boots. 
She fends off their spit and words with silent two-handed twist and turns off her socket wrench. A hurl of sticks and stones only to only me to whisper for her from sidewalk back far. Let me start that over. She fends off their spit and words with silent two-handed twist and turns off her socket wrench. A hurl of sticks and stones and only me to whisper for her from sidewalk far, break my bones. A grown woman in grease pocket overalls inside her own sexy transmission despite the crowding of hurled red hots. Beneath the hood of her candy apple Camaro, suit, shiny, low to the ground. The stars over the Atlantic are dangling salt crystals. The room at Seashell Inn is $20 a night. Special winter off season rate. No one else here but us in the night clerk five floors below. Alone with his cherished stack of Spider-Man. I lift her red snails in a primal search for every constellation. Hiding in the skin of your body. A hand waits for permission. For my life to agree to be changed forever. Can Captain Night Clerk hear my fingers timbering? Timberining you there on the moon. Won't he soon climb the stairs and bam on the hood of his car? You are a woman with film reels for eyes. Years long talking have brought us to the land of the body. Our skin is one endless prayer bead of brown. If my hand ever lands, I will fly past dreaming Australian aborigines. The old claw hammer and monkey wrench the flew at Brenda Jones will fly across the yard of ocean at me. A grease rag will be thrust into the painter's hands against my will. I will never be able to wash or peel any of this away. Before the night is over, someone I don't know will want the keys to my 55 silver thunderbird. He will chase me down the street. A gaggle of spooked hens will fly up in my grandmother's yard, never to lay another egg. Just as I am jumped, kneed, or finally to the ground of sweet clover. I really love that poem. I kind of butchered reading it because I can't see, but it's a beautiful poem. And I just love the beginning so much. If I touch her there, everything about me will be true. And then this like really sharp and like feral kind of fear the fear of like being like the Brenda Jones and the fear of retaliation for being who you are which I feel is like so alive right now for queer people especially trans people yeah that's a that's a great poem it's very timely so I'm going to take a little break again and then I'll be back with this week's guest Welcome back, everybody. I'm here with our guest, Alicia Mountain. Alicia Mountain, sorry. Um, so, bio Alicia Mountain is the author of Four in Hand, BOA 2023. Her debut collection, High Ground Coward, Iowa 2018, won the Iowa Poetry Prize. Her work has appeared in The Nation, Guernica, Pleiades, Poetry Northwest, and American Poetry Review. Mountain was a Clemens Doctoral Fellow at the University of Denver and the 
2020 through 2021 artist in residence at the University of Central Oklahoma. She serves on the board of Fodwifter, an LGBTQIA journal based in the Bay Area. Mountain lives in New York City, where she is an assistant teaching professor in the Writers Foundry MFA program at St. Joseph's University in Brooklyn. Hi, Alicia. Hi, DJ. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Excited to be with you. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. I have been a fan of your work for a while, so I'm really happy to hear have you here. Oh, I so respect and appreciate your your critical eye. Um, yeah. And so that means a lot to me. Thank you. Um, so I just have a few questions for you. We can get started jumping in those now. So the first question I like to ask is just like, um, when you were like young or a child, what was your perception of definition of poetry? Ooh, I, that's a great question. So often in interviews, I get like the same questions over and over, and this is a nice new yeah. one. Um, I think really my first introduction to poetry was in first and second grade. I had this wonderful teacher named Mrs. Charles, and we did we we each had a three ring binder and we would do I don't know that it was a poem every day but at least like once a week we would read a poem together as six and seven year olds and it would be like three three ring punched and so then you'd get to add it to your binder of poems and we read some kids poems we read some some Shel Silverstein and that kind yeah. of stuff we also read some quote-unquote adult poems we read some I remember Robert Frost being in there I remember mm -hmm. Langston Hughes being in there and when I was in elementary school we also had a, a visit from someone who had done I think it was a children's book about Langston Hughes mm -hmm. and they were like they were actually the illustrator so they were talking more about the art I think but I remember like being like okay that's a poet Langston Hughes is a poet and that's a big deal. That's cool. People make yeah. books about that. And I think Hughes's like poems are also so rich and layered that as a little white kid, there was definitely stuff that I was missing, but there was also stuff that I could grab onto in terms mm -hmm. of his imagery and his use of language. And so Hughes has like from that class visit or that assembly as a little kid, Hughes was kind of the first po person where I was like, okay, Langston Hughes was a poet, yeah. and he was a poet, and he was a black poet, and he was really talented in ways that we are still wrapping our minds around. Um, so I think that was my, my first understanding of poetry. Mostly they were like free verse poems that I read as a little kid, um, but it was a way of like being playful with words. Yeah, totally. Um along those lines of like first introductions being to free verse and things like that i'm wondering when did you start playing with form and other um types of poetry yeah so this this most recent book four in hand is the most formal that i've gone mm -hmm. um so these are like heroic crowns of sonnets and as a second collection of poetry i found that constraints were really productive and creative. My first book is like your typical contemporary collection collection where all the poems can kind of stand on their own two feet for the most part, or you can just like flip the book open to wherever 
and there's a poem and yeah. that works but this this newer book four in hand is it really is like more project oriented which i in the past i've like kind of turned my nose up at project mm-hmm. books and then i go and write a project book um <laughs> you know but i think that for a second book the my feeling was kind of like okay i said i said a lot in that first book that was like my first you know 30 however many years of life i kind of put into that book what do i write now and constraints were the way of kind of coaxing out new poems and and i had this idea of wanting to kind of write write my way into feel like kind of states of being and also Mm -hmm. concepts and ideas that were that felt like they needed more space that they were bigger than the scope of like a one-off poem and so this this crown of sonnets form is is cool for me to do that it felt cool as a way to do that work because the sonnets are individual poems but they're also part of these narrative arcs um and so i felt like it it gave me the room to do some of that bigger work or um, at least more uh, kind of weaving together a bunch of different strands over the co- course of those um, those sequences. So form um, really came in handy with making this book. I think earlier on, like I dabbled a little bit, like in MFA school, you know, it's like, practice writing something in meter and and that kind of thing but I it was it was mostly before this book it was like I would use form if I was stuck and I needed like some Mm -hmm. kind of prompt um and so if I didn't have an idea I was like okay well let me see what I can do with playing around with syllables or the line or sound or that kind of thing and it wasn't until um more recently that I was like no, we're gonna do a deep dive, but it's yeah. been it's been fun, and now I'm eager to kind of get back to regular, <laughs> regular poems um, in in the, whatever the next phase is. Yeah. So did you um, sort of just sit down and start writing sonnets and say, oh, this is a form that I want to play in a little bit more, or was it like an intentional? You set out to write sonnets. Great question. I so the first time that I did a sonnety thing was at a writing residency. Okay. I had this chunk of time set aside. I I forget what I applied with. I for, I, I don't know that I like followed through on it whatever I told them I would be working on, mm-hmm. but I started writing the first crown of sonnets that's in the book um Train Town Howl. I was at a residency in Virginia and I knew that I had four weeks and so I was like let me see if I could I wanted to write a poem a day and like let me see if I can get some momentum going on a next like project D type thing and so having that blocked out chunk of time um I I'd read part of a crown in a book by Malachi Black, Storm, Storm Come Morning, something like that. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That seems challenging. 
and let me see if I can do it. And I didn't think I was going to make a whole book out of it. I was like, let me just try to do this once. Um, but then it, it was the form, like that form kind of kept like dangling. It's, I don't know. It kept like kind of tempting me back or, mm-hmm. or challenging me. It felt like it was taunting me a little yeah. bit. Um, and it was like, can you do it again? Can you do it in a really minimal way? Can you do it in a really, like, can you do it in a weird voice? Can you do it with found text? Can you do it about your dad? Like, mm. see what you can do. And so I kind of kept coming back to it. Totally. Um, so I first came across your work when I was searching for more lesbian poets to, like, read and, like, spotlight in my work for, like, Autostrado and other places. Um, and you yourself often champion other poets and professors to teach lesbian poets in their classes or in their workshops and things like that. Um, earlier in the episode, I was talking a little bit about our lesbian elders, and I was wondering, who do you consider to be your lesbian elders, poetry or otherwise? Oh, yeah. that I, I love our lesbian elders in all of the definitions of yeah. that. Um, I, and I'm so, so grateful to be a lesbian. How lucky are we? I know. Um, <laughs> um, my lesbian elders, I think within poetry, I think of, um, well, I've, I've studied Pat Parker a lot. Yeah. Um, and really, she, I think she was like under, under known and under appreciated for a while and now um, is getting a little bit more attention. Mm-hmm. Um low-key like Mary Oliver I teach Mary Oliver and I feel like you know she's so lovable which some I think some people who are who are like more elitist they're like oh the general public loves Mary Oliver so we're better than that but no like yeah Mary Oliver can be like so likable and what's what's not to love about someone who brings new readers into poetry right um so you know she's she's deaf and and she has a real wonderful attention to the small and to the natural world and those are things mm. that have informed my poetry like really close eye to detail um and then eileen miles with confessional poetry i feel like there i remember a, a teacher early on compared my work to their work and at first i was like don't just pigeonhole me as a dyke who's like another dyke and the professor's like no it's it's this confessional voice that is like a miles type gesture um and and then our good old you know dick freaky dickinson like (laughs) um and even sappho like i Mm. i think of sappho as like the a, a thing that i really love about sappho was how she was actually so important in her community. She mm-hmm. was like this lesbian woman poet, all things with which these days are like kind of derided being yeah. a lesbian, being a woman, being a poet, like who who makes us central. Um, but in her world, she was like so important. She was at the ceremonies, she was writing ballads and writing songs for like straight people weddings she was writing songs about warships like she was um really beloved and, and yeah. that that is really lovely to think about totally. um 
and there have been, you know, so many, I feel like so many of my lesbian elders are just like people, people who I maybe didn't know were lesbians. Like mm. I think about like, you know, Queen Latifah, I, she's like such a, an icon and has, has been for yeah. so many years. And for the longest time I was like, okay, she's in Moulin Rouge, but like, <laughs> like you know, is a, a dyke icon. And, and I would even argue, hot take, that there are some dyke elders who are straight ladies. Like, Ooh. I think of, oh, I know. Like the, <laughs> I feel like the poet Jean Valentine, she, she mm. was not a lesbian, but like had a real was really in community with other less like was in community with women who were lesbians and was um you know a part of hiv um awareness and activism during her mm-hmm. lifetime and and she was a a really stunning poet whose work i admire a lot um so i'm sure can my my lesbian elders can go in a lot of different directions yeah. but um yeah, really grateful to be part of that lineage. And I'm so excited about, like, younger queer women poets who are up and coming. There's so many, and they're totally. so good. So, yeah, very, very excited about the next generation. For sure. Um, so, right now, I'd love to have you read a poem if you want to. Yeah, let me grab the book. Okay. Um, so, from foreign hand, I think I'll read a poem from... The first section, I was trying to pick out pick out bits that could work without having read the whole book, but yeah. also might might entice podcast listeners to check it out. Um, so I'll read this is this is the third sonnet in the first section called Train Town Howl. And this is a section about um, the speaker basically like having this love affair with another woman who is partnered to someone else Mm -hmm. um has a has a male partner and it it seems like this speaker might not get exactly the relationship she wants in this whole dating a girl with a boyfriend thing yeah um relatable maybe (laughs) (laughs) okay the poem poem goes like this between us held tight like too much hope and thunder sounds spanking the hills all year was a racket house party borrowed bass beats and cheap no chaser tequila jumping in reservoirs down on my knees in the locker room shower shoved up against locked office doors with you landlock that wouldn't hold drive me to unburdened land lake big enough to be an ocean he can come he who's in here too, to whom you are promised, the smoke dozing in your rafters. He can sleep in the back seat if you give me directions. That rough-faced friend I would never try to coax you from. Wow, I love that poem. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. So we're going to take just a little quick break and then we'll be back with more questions. So I have some more questions for you. Um, this is also a question that I love to ask, but like, what are the ideal conditions for your creative process? So like, what do you need to get started writing and feel comfortable in your practice? Mm, 
yeah, that, that is a good question. Let's see. My ideal conditions, I think I, I love it when I have something on my mind. It helps if mm. I start with having some little some little idea, whether that's an overheard, you know, bit of language or something that I see out in the world, um, or an emotion that I'm that I'm going through. Um, if that is kind of like bringing me to the page, that's ideal. Mm. But so often, you know, as as all of us who write can understand, we got to keep doing it even if we aren't inspired. Yeah. Um, and so I like my writing materials, I try to keep really simple um, because it feels like lower stakes if I versus like fancy leather bound notebook. No, that's going to like paralyze me mm-hmm. because I'll feel like the, the poem has to live up to the fanciness of the materials. So I love a shitty notebook. <laughs> I, I'm a like, I'm a mechanical pencil girly because I like to be able to erase yeah. um, and move things around. And I, I usually write best either in the morning or at night, like middle of the day. Okay. Like too, I feel like by the middle of the day, I'm like too tuned into the rest of what's happening in the world. And I've like looked at the internet too much and my brain is not like in its most um attentive poetic zone um and sometimes I like to listen to music to kind of get into the into the right headspace um usually not stuff with too much like too many words like if it's if it's more vibey like vibey music or instrumental or you know something like that but just to kind of put me into an atmosphere um and I love to have a cup of tea nearby um and maybe a candle yeah stuff that's like nice for the senses and and just kind of like engages my senses like flips the switch on my sense of smell my sense of taste my sense of hearing that kind of stuff yeah totally yeah um are you like the kind of poet that like you can experience an event or like go see a movie or hear a song or see a bird and be like that was so beautiful and awe-inspiring that I have to write something down about it sometimes like definitely the things that I encounter in my lived experience make their way into the poems yeah um plenty of made stuff made up stuff goes into the poems too um but yeah I I for sure especially really moving artwork of Mm -hmm. you know of other genres or um not you know natural beauty like that that stuff for sure goes into the into the vocabulary of description and of of image and of narrative um yeah I I when I'm talking to young, like emerging writers or people mm. who are just getting into writing poetry, I'm like, just pay attention, just pay yeah. really close attention to what's around you and let it, like, let it work its way into the page. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, so I have a question about, it's sort of about your first collection, but also about Four in Hand. Um, so how has releasing your second full length changed your relationship to High Ground Coward? Mm, yeah, I... I think that they are, it's interesting, I think that they're quite different books, but mm-hmm. it's also still the same, I can recognize myself in both of them, yes. like I think it's the same The same person who has written them, mm-hmm. um, and just let some time pass in between the two. I look at, I, I when I reread High Ground Coward, and I, I, re- I reread it just as the second book came out to kind of just spend a little time there, feel yes. some gratitude for the path. And um, I think it's a really sweet book. Like I look back on it now and I'm like, oh, this is this is cute. Like you didn't know all of these things were gonna happen later. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell that High Ground Coward was written before the election of Trump. Like yeah. it doesn't have some of like, Foreign Hand has some moments of like work, definitely some moments of worry, some a lot of moments of like reckoning yeah. with what it is to be an American, to be a person of privilege, and um, High Ground Coward just like has that in the back of its head, but not in the in the foreground. Mm-hmm. Um, and High Ground Coward is also a book that. Um, I feel like the landscape in in High Ground Coward is really um, an important character almost like the I I wrote most of that when I was living in Montana most of High Ground Coward is in Montana and it's it's really nice to get to reread that collection and connect with that place now that I live in New York Um, so I and also when I reread High Ground Coward, I was like, "Ooh, I was doing some weird stuff in here too." Uh-huh. Like some of the poems, the way I was using the space of the page and white space, getting off of the left-hand margin, and some of the poems are a little bit more abstracty or conceptual. And I'm I'm proud of the the like younger poet who is experimenting mm-hmm. and getting to know different ways of poem like that poems can exist yeah totally um and in foreign hand i think the section it's the last section mm-hmm. i think it's called my meryl or meryl something like that okay yeah, yes um so i was curious about that section i mean i love the whole book but i was very drawn to that section in particular um and i wanted to hear a little bit about the process of like coming to those poems yeah um so that's that's like it's a funky part of the book, but it's yeah. one that I'm excited about. Um, that, so the whole, the whole backstory of that last sonnet crown, my Merrill, is that I had been studying the poet James Merrill a little mm-hmm. bit, um, and he was a you know a gay gay man poet and you know prolific in the 20th century and. I came to find out that he was the the gay son of a Wall Street businessman. Mm. His father, Charles Merrill, was one of the co-founders of Merrill Lynch, the like big bank. And I'm the gay kid of an accountant 
um, mm-hmm. uh, of this guy. And so I kind of felt this, this kinship with James Merrill a little bit. And Merrill had this writing practice with his life partner where they would like use a homemade Ouija board and they would channel these voices in like a seance vibe to dictate poetry to them. And so they'd use the Ouija board to like receive poems from these spirits. And so I was like, wow, that is zany. And (laughs) I was like looking, I was looking for inspiration and also looking for just like guidance. I was, I like was coming to the end of my PhD program. I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do next. I was, it was also like, that was just as the pandemic was beginning to like, we were beginning to realize what a big deal it would be. I was like 20 and I was like, you know, E, I need like a guardian and a guiding figure. And so I was like, let me see if I can kind of harness that Meryl, Meryl mode of communing and instead of using a Ouija board, I was, I had um, an account at Merrill Lynch and I was getting these financial newsletter emails. Mm-hmm. Each week, Merrill Lynch would send like a, a like advisor blog post basically in a newsletter email that I would receive. And I had just thought of them as spam and I was like, ugh. But then I was like, maybe within the spam, there could be something. Um, and I think I was also curious about like the relationship between technology and poetry, yeah. um, internet and poetry. And so I decided to use all of those spam emails, like two years worth of spam emails as my found text, like word bank. Mm. and. So every word in the section, like every word in those sonnets in that last section comes from this found text yeah. um, from these emails. And the voice that started to emerge was interesting. It was like this, it, it spoken like a we, which felt internet-y. It wasn't just like an I, it was like this, mm. this like conglomeration, but it was also pretty intimate and it felt like yeah. it was to help me and trying to coax me along and it was like you know a little bit impatient a little bit like come on Alicia like get it together but also like we get it and so I I ended up with this like pseudo robo James Merrill like reverse AI Mm. kind of uh, creative process and and, and when I, as I've reflected on it and taken a step back, I feel like it was really a way for me to kind of a Rorschach, like, I feel like found text can be kind of a Rorschach test yeah. of like, what do you find in here? Another poet would have taken that same word bank and created totally different poems. Yeah. So it really is a way of like seeing yourself reflected or like getting to know your own thought process, getting to know your own emotional state, um, by putting it on the page in this very roundabout way of coming to it. Um, and I, I walk away from it being like, okay, we're like, we're getting, to, we're, we're getting somewhere. 
and ending the collection with that section was a way of kind of like also sending the reader off with this kind of guiding, well-wishing, you know, sentiment of like, we've gone on this journey together and now you get to um, walk, walk your path on your own. Totally. Awesome. I love hearing that. Um, so my last question is, I believe this line is in the first section and I might misquote it, so forgive me, but I believe the line is, this book is a monument to touch. Yeah. That one, I think about that line all the time and I wanted to ask you about it and get your thoughts on like, um, it sort of feels like a thesis, but like, um, also kind of a summation in that way and I wanted to just like get your thoughts on that line yeah 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 absolutely I I have a soft spot for gestures in books where they acknowledge that they are books where it's like you're reading this book right now um and so this was a way of kind of like like you're reading it and I as the poet see that you're reading it and you see me seeing you. Mm. That was part of it. Um, but moreover, it really, I think that that the idea that a book is a monument to touch, and this book specifically, I think it's very tied up in in love, in desire, mm. in the body, and that you know those those are such motivators for many of our poems. Um, love and desire in the body and and there's this idea about like what is a monument is not the thing itself it's a it's a like memorial for the things sometimes it 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 sometimes it sanctifies the thing Mm. or remembers the thing um but it's it's it can't replace the it can't replace the thing exactly so The book being a monument to touch also kind of acknowledges the limits of writing and the limits of poetry and the limits of the book while also um, kind of exalting how how much we need touch and how touch touch can and 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 that touch that the book is not a replacement for touch but it's a it's a what is it it's a a monument to it it's um it and that touch can mean physical touch but touch can also mean to be to be reached by something to be moved by something like oh that's touching exactly Um, and i yeah i think that you're right to call it both kind of a thesis and a summation but like it wouldn't if someone's like what's this book about Saying the book is a monument to touch wouldn't give the whole story, but yeah. it would be it would be like that's one of the things. That's one of the things. It's about, you know, wanting a lover who is otherwise occupied. It's about wanting the embrace of a parent whom you have tension with. It's about um wanting to be able to salvage a natural world that um human forces have yes. you know broken down in a lot of ways and how how can we be in touch with that mm. and 
and it's also you know what it is to be somewhat isolated or to live in a digital world where physical touch is is taking on different forms or we substitute you know substitute different types of types of connection for it yeah yeah and i like the idea of like when you have the physical book in your hands then it's a way of holding hands it's a way of you know for in hand so there's some some touch there too yeah totally um so could you close this out with a poem yeah absolutely let me let me do one from that last section because you were saying that 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 section draws your attention um let's go with okay i'm going to read a poem so this is this is from my Merrill. it's that section that is found text and it's it's talking about um this poem is is this kind of collective speaker giving some wisdom to um the the alicia type person but perhaps to the reader perhaps to any of us or to this this one specific voyager from an individual become a team in social, family, couple, life, and more. Be through with personal competitive trends. Bullish woman that you are, you're not the only one. The bullish team is us behind you. Women of all ages, of all decades as foundation. And the curve of top or bottom, both or neither, roles in which you to see potential you, from which to graduate. Secure now in your bowl. Transform your oversold economy of love. A gender classes overhaul to start amalgamation of priorities. Leave footprints altogether. Save your world. Wow. I love that. Thank you for sharing. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah, no problem. Um, if you don't mind sharing your socials, if you want people to follow you there. Sure, sure, sure. On mostly just like catch me on what FKA Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> um, there I'm at High Ground Coward, just H I, like high, High Ground Coward. Um, and I also teach. Um, yes. If you're looking for a, if you're looking for an MFA program and you want to do some further study, come to Brooklyn and check out the Writers Foundry MFA at St. Joseph's University in Brooklyn. Um, we would we'd love to have you, both, both, both poets and prose writers and everybody in between. Yeah. Feel free to reach out about that. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. All right, take care.